It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, welcome to the latest edition of Screen Talk, IndieWire's podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic and senior editor at IndieWire, and I'm joined, as always, by Ann Thompson out in Los Angeles, IndieWire's editor-at-large and the proprietor of Thompson in Hollywood. How's it going out there, Ann? Real good. I've been busy. Lots of stuff going on. One minute the L.A. Film Festival ends, and the next minute it's time to go to Palm Springs. <laughs> you know, never a dull moment. I have to tell you, one of the things that I really enjoy about what we do is that even though there's this ridiculous hulking blockbuster coming out this week, being Transformers, of course. Which I skipped. You can skip it, and we can talk about your trip to Palm Springs and not feel totally guilty about it. Well, one of the things that I love about doing, you know, sometimes I get invited to these places in order to be on panels. You know, sometimes I moderate them, sometimes I... I uh, participate. In this case, uh, Kevin Iwashina, who's a very smart um, ex-CAA agent who's a foreign sales and financing uh, guy and a producer's rep, he basically um, uh, ran a panel that was about the business as it stands today. And, of course, the room was packed with all these short filmmakers from all over the world. And I was very struck by how much they still aspire to Hollywood. You know, the idea that Hollywood is the holy grail and people perceive the American film industry as this mecca, this big opportunity. And the truth of the matter is that the barrier to entry on the level of just being able to make a film at a low cost is very low. You can anybody can do that. Really, if they put their mind to it, they'll figure out a way. But it is not that easy, even through shorts and film festivals and the various ways that that are available to actually get the attention or a job or distribution or the possibility that you could be a filmmaker from a foreign country and come to America and make movies. It's really hard. And and I was disturbed and and sort of um, worried, you know, by by how many people don't seem to understand, you know, how grim that those options really are, you know, and also that, that the studio options are really farther away, you know, as far as someone actually finding a career. So people on the panel were talking about, you know, Ryan Johnson and, and how he went from Brick to uh, Looper to uh, Star Wars and what a great uh, trajectory that was. And that, you know, is a remarkable and he deserves it. And he's a great writer, among other things. That's one of the reasons he got that gig. And, you know, like like J.J. Abrams is, you know, it isn't just um, but he can do action and he can do actors. He can make good performances and he can provide an authentic world that we can all respond to. And he's witty and funny. You know, these are all the qualities that you would want. But it's very difficult to make that that um, 
that leap. And, um, and, and also it's a question of do, do we want this talented filmmaker to then make some Star Wars movies, you know? I mean, it's interesting because you, you, you mentioned how these people view the industry as this mecca, which, you know, look, I can't get away from the Transformers question as much as, you know, on some level we can ignore it, but look, it consumed about three hours of my day yesterday, so I'm still recovering. I, I'm, I'm trying to understand the, the ramifications of this movie because a lot of people are going to see it this weekend. And the reality is, one of the things that Transformers does is it shows you just how hard it is to make great movies now. You know, I, I've been thinking about how that overshadowing effect works more recently because I went to this dinner over the weekend that the Film Society of Lincoln Center hosted for their filmmaker in residence, which this year is this really talented Argentine uh, named Lissandra Alonso. He had a film with Viggo Mortensen that it was at the Cannes Film Festival this year called Jauja. Uh It's the closest thing I've seen to something that Tarkovsky would have make, made if he was still alive today. Really beautiful, epic purely visually driven, kind of a fantasy of sorts, but very abstract. You probably won't see it unless it gets some kind of a distributor who wants to push it out there in a big way. But most people who are geared towards seeing movies like Transformers are definitely never going to know this movie exists. Going outside of a very limited context like that kind of a filmmaker, that struggle is there for a lot of bigger filmmakers as well. At this dinner, I was sitting with Mira Nair, who's currently trying to produce a Broadway adaptation of Monsoon Wedding. You know, and yeah, that's where you go when you can't get Hollywood movies made exactly. like Shazam. Exactly. I mean, I, I you know, as, as cool as that is in theory, if you like Monsoon Wedding, it's like, I'd love to see another Mira Nair movie that's like Monsoon Wedding. And Me Oliver, too. You know, I Oliver, love her. And, and, and there were other people there, too. I mean, Oliver Stone was there. Uh, Julie He's always Taylor. complaining. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I mean, honestly, and I'd love to see him make another great movie, but they have some reason to complain. I mean, it's, it, it seems as though the studios are so risk-averse, partly because something like Transformers gives them the excuse. Both Mira Nair and Oliver Stone are capable, with the right elements, of raising their funding overseas via uh, upfront guarantees from foreign markets, via foreign sales. I think each, and that's probably, and I'm sure that is how Oliver is funding the movie that he's doing. Edward about Snowden. Snowden. Right, sure. That, I mean, and look, they'll, they'll be okay also because they have brands that are secured on the basis of their accomplishments from another period of time. But the studios are not going to hand them the kinds of projects that they used to be able to make, and that's absolutely true, and it's a terrible, terrible uh, situation right now. Well, in fact, a... it's easier for a young action filmmaker like Ryan Johnson or for Gareth Edwards, for example, to go from Monster to Godzilla, which is an enormous leap, but not really. It's just like a bigger budget movie <laughs> version of something with more with a bigger toolkit kit to play with. Um, you know, it, it, it's easier for them in a way to, to be uh, controlled by the studios uh, than it is for uh, a real filmmaker who has uh, an independent sensibility to uh, make a serious drama. But that's exactly it. They're being controlled by the studios. And that, that was something I was thinking about also a few days ago when this news came out that Steven Soderbergh is producing a TV series in which he plans to hire both Lodge Kerrigan and Amy Simons, two very talented filmmakers who have never done anything like studio projects behind the camera. Is uh, this the Nick? The Soderbergh thing is not the Nick, which is... The show About to debut. Right. Yeah. The, the Soderbergh thing that, that was in the news this week is 
a 13-episode series based on his film The Girlfriend Experience. Oh, that one. Okay. And what's But this is the world. I mean, Soderbergh went public a long time ago saying he's never going to make another movie. He's going to go to TV. And that was the other uh, takeaway from not only my uh, panel at at, uh, Palm Springs, but the one following, which was more geared toward uh, the artistic process. And another panel I did on Monday uh, at the IDA, which was um, with a group of women who were running uh, doc series at various uh, TV and cable outlets, uh, CNN, uh, Al Jazeera, Pivot, participants uh, channel. And it was fascinating because those opportunities are myriad there are many, many, many opportunities for people to. If you're if you're into documentaries, you don't have to worry about trying to, to to fund it as an independent feature. As much as you can go to TV, you can go to all these outlets and find financing and find a way to show something to a big audience. It's not so hard. Right. Well, that's why I think it's actually kind of interesting that Soderbergh seems to not only be using TV to find a new outlet for what he wants to do, but now appears to be dragging in other filmmakers to give them that kind of opportunity. And last year, he gave this keynote speech at the San Francisco Film Festival where he said something to the effect of, if I was a studio exec, I would take filmmakers like Shane Carruth and Amy Simons, who is now directing an episode of the show, and ask them what they want to do. So I think there's some element of of someone working within the constraints of of the industry now to to help more people that's going on there that we should keep an eye on. Well, it isn't just, it isn't brand new news though, Eric. I mean, really, there are many, many people now who are, I mean, Lena Dunham went from, from, uh, you know, Tiny Furniture and her success at South by to, uh, HBO. And, and now, um, HBO is, is the, is the place to go. And, and for a lot of independent filmmakers, I mean, you know, that I use Barda, um, listen to me and Yeshka Holland directs, uh, for HBO and, and, and people like Jeremy Podeswa in Canada, you know, there's, there's many, many, many film directors now who, who are directing for, for, for cable because that's where the jobs are. Right. Of course, it's nothing new. I guess what I'm trying to say is... He's being we, an advocate for real emerging talent. Right. There's another st- step going on here. I mean, Soderbergh has worked within the system for a long time and seen its extremes. I mean, he directed a franchise. He's directed small indies. He knows virtually every aspect of what it feels like to make a movie both in the indie and the Hollywood sectors. And so this, to me, represents something that could be more of a dramatic leap. And I'm really interested, if not as excited, to see where it goes, because frankly, you know, I think Amy Simons made a really great movie, Sun Don't Shine. I, think I loved Car- it. And, and she's a great actress, too. Very great actress. So, you know, it's like I don't want to lose their, their filmmaking talent in the process, but I am curious to see how this evolves. You know. Well, it can't hurt for anyone to learn new chops. It can't hurt for any, you know, what is good, what I think is absolutely appropriate here is that the old hierarchy, which is you know, basically films are more important than TV, you know, better to be in a film than to be on television, you know, for your career. The agents are now backing off and recognizing that it's okay. It's, it's, it's fungible. It's, and somebody said to me, and, you know, forget about this definition of two hour features versus, you know, TV. It, it's all 
all filmed entertainment. Sean Daniel said this. So it's it's fine. You know, it's it's fine and it's it's flexible and it's fluid and I think that people can move back and forth and learn new skills and you know, just the way people who make commercials, you know, Errol Morris makes commercials, Spike Lee makes commercials, they all learn things and, and bring it back to their feature filmmaking. Well, what's interesting about that, though, is with the girlfriend experience, I mean, that was a, basically a micro-budget effort that uh, Soderbergh did sort of on the side. It has a sort of sketchy quality to it, but it's also very much rooted in 2008 recession-era anxieties. So just to bring this full circle, though, what I think is interesting about all of this is that Transformers is projected to make something like $100 million at the week box office this yes. weekend. You know, and, and I just have to wonder... Does that mean that movies are losing unless they're made on this kind of scale? Or does it just allow everything else to be a lot weirder because there's no expectation being placed on this stuff to perform at all? No, my argument, my argument that I've been making a lot and it's in the book, you know, the, the argument is that if the studios are, the, the, the studios have done the numbers and they have, the, mum, the numbers to them prove over and over and over again that the bigger movies make more money that pay for everything else. But they don't make everything else. They just make the big movies. And therefore they don't develop, you know, the Christopher Nolans and, and, and Ryan Johnsons of the world. You know, he made his career independently, Ryan Johnson. So they're poaching from, from the indies. And that's where experiment and, and, and experiments and innovation and, and talent uh, growth occur, but at a very small budget level. It's impossible, um, you know, for a lot of people to make that leap between the indies and the studios. And that's where the hole is, the middle. Well, on that incredibly grim note, maybe we should talk about the movies that we actually like opening this week. You want to kick it off? <laughs> there are some. I really like Begin Again, which is the John Carney new movie. Uh, he did once, and it went to Broadway. It was a huge hit and everything. And it was interesting. I saw it on the same day as Jersey Boys, which I didn't like nearly as much, and wasn't you know as, as musically adept. And there's original music here, and Kira Knightley and Mark Ruffalo and Catherine Keener and Haley Steinfeld. And it, it is one of the other things I really like about it is that instead of it just being Mark Ruffalo's story, it is also Kira Knightley's story. And she carries her own and she it is not it does not follow the classic romantic comedy tropes that you would expect and so i i enjoyed uh the surprises uh that were inherent in this very entertaining uh movie i have one issue with this movie which used to be called can a song save your life when it premiered at the toronto film festival last fall and uh, i think there's one really remarkable moment early in the film when Mark Ruffalo's character hears Kira Knightley do an acoustic set and then in his mind sees all these other instruments come to life behind her. I it's love that. Really beautiful moment of magic realism. I don't see that in the rest of the movie, which struck me as a little too cynical and self-aware without being as deep as that particular moment suggested. And I was, I was hoping for a sort of a probing look at sort of the, the alienating aspects of the music industry, the way that commercialism is sort of getting in the way of real talent. You know, and I think it, it touches on that in that really remarkable moment in a way that felt pure and the rest of the movie felt more shallow by comparison. It captured, it cap what it did was to capture this particular character's gifts and imagination 
and you know he you could you could you could understand that he could hear what she could be if he produced her and that's what drove him to do that and i enjoyed all the parts where they're playing in the different venues around the city and and that whole indie sort of do it yourself diy aspect of it and her rebellion against uh, the record industry I, i i got a kick out of the whole thing well, you know, what's interesting about it is, is uh, we did a piece on IndieWire this week about how musicals need better directors. That, you know, Clint Eastwood really dropped the ball with this Jersey Boys thing, right? We talked right. about that last week. And we haven't seen a really great movie musical with a filmmaker in- injecting their voice into it. And my big takeaway from this movie is, wouldn't it be great if somebody got John, got John Carney to be that guy? I mean, we'll see how it goes with Annie, for example. But, uh, you know, I just I, we're missing out on that kind of sense of authenticity and sophistication that made the movie musical an interesting genre in the first place. And this I'm not movie, sure authenticity is the word I would use for well, most say, movie musicals, but it's something they could use, that's for sure. When I say authenticity, I don't mean naturalism. I mean something that's really that really has soul and, and the energy that makes musicals interesting in the first place. Well, that's what we want for musicals. When they miss it and when they become fake and overwrought is when... When we're in trouble. So let's dovetail into the into my favorite movie that's opening this week. I talked about it with you in our first installment, but I want to get back into it now that it's here. Bong Joon Ho's Snowpiercer. I actually traveled down to Austin for an outdoor screening of this film uh, that was done as sort of a promotional campaign over the weekend, and I think it's really fascinating to see Radius, the distributor, uh, try to promote this as counter programming to the blockbuster of the weekend, Transformers, because Snowpiercer really is a kind of alternative spectacle, in a way, this really fascinating experience set it's on a It's pretty expensive for one of these films, too. It's it not was just a, a little budget movie. It's like right. $40 million, It's right? a $40 million movie, which was the largest production in Korean history. It's a Korean movie, but it's got Captain America, it's got Tilda Swinton, Feels Chewing like, up the scenery. Exactly. It feels like something that a lot of different people can watch and get something out of. It's not alienating for somebody who doesn't consider themselves a cinephile. But I would a- say it's very violent, though. It, I, mean, I love this movie. I absolutely love it. But it is not, it is assaulted. Do not sit too close to the screen, as I did. Yeah, we touched on that before. But, you know, when we get into violence, I mean, I see a lot of stuff. I go to genre festivals. I love midnight movies. This one... You're, you're right, it goes to certain kinds of extremes, but more than anything else, it is an action movie and a science fiction movie, and I think that's what people will get energized by. And, and I really want to see those kinds of movies get made. So, you know, whether Bong Joon-ho tries to make a studio movie next or somebody sees Snowpiercer. I hope not. I don't want to see his Star Wars. I want to see somebody like that or somebody inspired by something like Snowpiercer try to make another original science fiction movie because... Without that kind of originality, we don't have any reason to go to movies in the first place. Oh, um, I agree with you. And on, on that note, I, I would like to bring up uh, the problem of not seeing movies in the context of our usual concluding feature, which we like to call Nikki Watch. Now, <laughs> how long we keep this up, I just don't know. But we still have something to talk about here because this past week, there was a very interesting piece posted on Deadline that was a conversation between Peter Bart and Mike Fleming about Nikki, and you wrote a very trenchant response to it. So let's talk what about that. What happened there is that I read that piece, and I don't, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't particularly like those pieces when the two of them, you know, sort of 
ramble. act like fake friends and, and colleagues. And, and I think one of the reasons is that my own sense of what's true raises its head. And, and I worked at Variety, you know, and they pulled me over from, from the Hollywood Reporter, lured me with a, a better paycheck and so forth. And I thought they were the Tiffany brand. And, and one of the things I realized when I got there was that it's, it was over inflated and bloated and, 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 you know, they were in trouble. I could tell. I knew it the day I got there, partly because I had come from the Hollywood Reporter when it was, you know, lean and mean and they had been cost cutting and getting very tight. They knew what they needed to do. And, and so, um, you know, Variety was, was not, you know, it was, it had a weekly, it had a daily, it had a Gotham edition, it had huge numbers of staff, it took many people to can every year, it was that, all that stuff. And so, and also Peter Bart, who was the editor-in-chief, who I respected a good deal, and still do, uh, for his journalistic prowess and, and a lot of things, but he had a blind spot, which was the internet, and he didn't get it, and that set Variety back for years. What he cared about was the weekly. He cared about the people who wrote for the weekly. And, and, you know, to an extent, he undervalued Mike Fleming and didn't treat him that well. He was out of New York working in his basement in Long Island, collecting scoops every day. That was his job. And he did it really well. And so Nikki takes, you know, I get mad at the two of them sort of being self-congratulatory in a way when I think, at the expense of Nikki Fink, when I think that as many problems as I have with her, mostly having to do with how she gets her stories and how she bullies people and browbeats people. That's a question of behavior, you know, uh, and style. I do not uh, take away from her the credit that she deserves for changing the entire trade uh, field, you know, single-handedly. And this is um, this is a, a big a big thing that she should should be valued for, and and uh, uh, that's why I wrote the story. That I, I can did. only imagine that ringing phone with Nikki, who somehow knew that you were talking about her. She actually thanked me. As you know, there's no love lost between us, so I was I was amazed. And she went on the blog and and thanked me for writing that story. Well, look, what I found to be sort of alienating and strange about that conversation is that again, the deeper we get into this, the further we get from talking about actual movies. And so I want to see film reporting that actually engages with the larger spectrum of possibilities that moving images have. And the problem is this bizarre disconnect where people are not engaging with that. They're engaging with aspects of the industry that are very far removed from the product itself. And, you know, whether Nikki Fink needs to see more movies or everybody else needs to do better, I don't know. But that's sort of what I find frustrating about the whole thing. What I found annoying about one of her box office stories recently was why, you know, she went into all the reasons why, you know, Jersey Boys didn't do well at the box office. And when when she does that, um, you know, we have to recognize that she didn't see the film, that these this analysis is not based on her own viewing. And it's based on what other people tell her. And that's that's the part of it. It's not transparent in that sense. And, and but that's you know people people sometimes get annoyed with me because I'm a combination hybrid person on the one hand, trained 
you know, at NYU uh, Cinema Studies to be a critic. Um, on the other hand, have spent much of my time uh, being a film reporter and business reporter and analyst of, of the behind-the-scenes machinations. But I do consider myself to be um, knowledgeable about films and, and capable, and I have always gone to see them. So I combine, you know, those things, and, and, and I try to be, you know, fair about it. But a lot of business reporting has nothing to do with seeing the films. Well, look, last week we closed with my recommendation that Nikki see a movie called Exhibition. I don't know if she saw it, but I would say if you're listening, Nikki, Snowpiercer, <laughs> it matters. You know, if, if you're, if you're going to commit, we'll, we'll all know about the box office for Transformers, but Snowpiercer could use some extra love, so maybe that'll stick. And it's always a pleasure. We will continue to be optimistic about where movies are heading, even as TV continues to take over, and we'll revisit the topic soon enough. All best, Eric. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.